Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. Lord, we trust you. We trust you in all things. And perhaps you gave this to me as a lesson in trust because I know that this isn't me today. Uh, I'm wholly dependent upon you to use me and speak. Lord, I pray that whatever comes out of my mouth today be exactly what someone in here needs to hear. And that everyone in here today hears something that will bring them closer to you. Lord, we lift up the people who are meeting together today. We pray for the safety at the Arab Christian Messianic Jewish Fellowship. We pray that disturbance, fear, and all of the attacks of the enemy be kept far from that place. And that those who leave spread the message of your love far and wide. In the name of Messiah, we pray all these things. Amen. Doris looks like she's scared to come in and make noise, but now I've pointed her out so she can make as much noise as she wants. Ah, I'm supposed to open I did not actually plan a joke for this because this is not... (laughs) That's good. This is not a fun and funny topic we're talking about today. Um, Even I can't get a whole lot of humor out of this. Uh... Partly because I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and say, yeah. how many of you were listening when Aaron read the uh, reading from the Torah this morning in English? Okay. How many of you read the entire portion this week? Yeah. There are about 10 verses about all the blessings that you get from being obedient to God. And then there are about 30 about all the stuff that happens if you aren't obedient. Those aren't things to be making jokes about. So all three readings today, they connect in a very tremendous way. Um, so we're, we're going to be jumping all over our Bibles. Do you, you have your Bibles here with you today? You ready to jump around and do sword drills? If in doubt, we're hoping they will be up on the screen because uh, my wife is much smarter than I am when it comes to those sort of things. But I'm actually reading from a couple different translations today because the things I wanted to point out are much better defined in one translation or another. So while I am, I am a King James authorized version kind of person, there are a few places, okay, there are a few places where the King James doesn't render the meaning of the verse as well as other trans, so I use the tree of life in a couple places. I know the shock and awe that I use the tree of life version, but it was a good translation in this particular passage. All right, um, our foundational verse though, we have already heard this morning, it's straight from our Brit Chadashah reading. Uh, Matthew twenty-one forty-two. Yeshua said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was Adonai's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. You've heard that before, right? Um, anybody here a stonemason? No? No stonemasons? I've got a feeling that because Yeshua was a tekton, which means a, a tradesman, uh, a construction guy, and most of the houses in Israel are built out of stone, he's probably more of a stonemason than a carpenter. You see him using references to stones all the time, like a stonemason would. Very rarely do you see him like, I am stable like the leg of a well-built table. I don't remember that verse. I will hold you up like that shelf on your wall that I put up. No, you don't hear that. But he talks about stone as a foundation and solid thing all the time. And here he talks about he is the chief cornerstone. Remember that new King James we had on the screen this morning? Actually, the, the King James is also the chief cornerstone. And I know you, many of you probably heard this part before, but what is a cornerstone? What is the chief cornerstone of a building? What well, doesn't hold up the whole thing, but that's cl- that's close. They they are actually they are they they're pouring a new footing right at one corner of our house. We were up there the other day, and that is essentially analogous to a cornerstone. Um, in a modern building, it's usually mostly decorative. You've seen on like big bank big brick bank buildings, there'll be a cornerstone. This says established or built in such and such a year. 
Um, well, most of them are decorative now, so it doesn't really make much difference. When you go back to actually building buildings in stone, it was more important. Because um, modern techniques and codes, brick and mortar is usually just a facade on the building anyway, because especially in California, if you build things out of brick, it falls down when the earth moves. Uh, that's why Whittier is now mostly looks like bricks, because during the Whittier earthquake, a good chunk of downtown hit the ground. Um, but when you were building, like they were in first century Israel, building buildings and palaces and houses out of stone bricks just laid together, sometimes with mortar and sometimes without, that cornerstone became a vitally important piece of the structure. Because it wasn't the thing that everything rested on, but it was the thing from which everything else was measured. See, a modern building, we take surveys, and they'll put a little... How many of you see the little spike on the curb between your, your house and your neighbor's? It, that's the property line marker. And from that mark is where they measure everything else that goes when they build the house. The, this corner is so many degrees and so long from that mark. That corner is so many degrees and so long from that mark. And that's how they lay out a house when they build it. Um, if that... but. Before they did that, before they had these, you know, hyper-accurate surveying tools, they would lay out the stone and build everything from that. And so you'd have a square block, you know, square block, this is relatively squarish, and this wall would go straight out from that surface. Then this wall would go straight out from this surface. And what would happen if this wall was tilted a little bit like that compared to that wall? Yeah, the walls would be going in the wrong directions. You would, they, they, they'd all be different lengths. They might be curved, try and meet back again at the other side. Um, coincidentally, that would actually make them stronger if you did it right, but they didn't do that. And so it was vital that that first stone, especially on a big project like uh, the Herodium or Herod's Temple or Herod's uh, Mausoleum, I meant, sorry, uh, Masada, all these buildings, these huge foundations... The temple itself, big, huge structures built entirely of stone. And if that cornerstone wasn't absolutely perfect, the rest of the thing would be unstable. Now, not that you couldn't adjust it later, but it wouldn't be as beautiful if you had to adjust it later. So it had to be perfectly square, absolutely as as close as you can possibly get it. And very meticulously aligned. Because if, you know, if, if the cornerstone was like this, then all of a sudden, even if it's perfectly square, you know, your synagogue's not going to face east anymore, it's going to face a little south of east. It's not going to face directly towards Jerusalem, it'll be facing towards a suburb of Jerusalem. Got that idea? Okay. How many of you have heard of all this before and I'm just reiterating boring stuff for you? A couple. Okay, that's not so bad. Um, it's, it's actually similar. What you were thinking of it is a capstone in an arch uh, that stands at the top of the arch and it holds the whole structure of the arch is kind of held up by braces until that capstone goes in place. And that all the forces work against each other in perfect balance and that holds that arch and makes it a stable structure. Until it's in there, and unless it's perfectly shaped to fit the hole of the other two stones, the, the arch can fall down at the slightest touch. So keeping all that in mind, because, you know, I think he, was, he had this in mind because I think he was a stonemason, and I think he knew all these concepts and how important, how vitally important it was to have a good cornerstone. Why does Scripture call him the cornerstone? He didn't just say it. You see, he was quoting someplace else. In Psalm 18, overall, Psalm 18 is about the faithfulness of Adonai. Um, and in the section beginning, verse, thir- verse 19, sorry, it says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The gates are part of the structure. If they're not strong and stable, 
People are going to die when they go into the building. Any of you who've been in construction know that's a bad thing. So this section is literally about the structure of how faithfulness works. The whole song is about faithfulness. This part's about structure. So this is about the structure of faithfulness. Um, it, it's how, it's the imagery that God is using to describe the mechanics of how faithful he is. Verse 22 is of the same passage is what you should have quoted in today's reading. Uh, let's see here. Evin ma'asu habonim haita l'rosh pina. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Literally, the word there, rosh pina, means the head or the beginning of the corner. And we all know if you start off wrong, the rest of it's going to be wrong. In the context of this passage, God's faithfulness literally begins with Yeshua. Now that doesn't mean that people, God wasn't faithful before Yeshua came, because Yeshua is eternal. His time on earth was finite, but Yeshua himself is an eternal part of God, and God, and separate from God, but it's confusing. It hurts your brain. We're not going to talk about the Trinity today because we don't have years to discuss it. And we still wouldn't figure it out at the end. I think I turned multiple pages. No, I didn't. Uh, following up on that, Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. I think you all know this one too. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Sion a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He that believeth shall not make haste. Uh, the Tree of Life actually translates that last word as will not flee in haste. I, I think the King James in this version is actually a better translation. Because the root means to hurry up. Why do you hurry? Certainly if you're running away from something, you're going to be hurrying, right? If someone's chasing you with a gun, you're not going to dawdle. If you realize you've got the gas bill payment and the shutoff date is in 20 minutes and it's a couple miles away, you're not going to hang out and get a cup of coffee before you take the gas bill payment in. You're going to hurry. It's urgent. We hurry usually because we fear we won't be in time, right? That we'll be late, and because we're late, bad things will happen. Now, on the other hand, if we're fully trusting in the Lord's faithfulness, well, we know he's got this under control, right? There's no need to hurry. That's not saying, again, we don't want to dawdle and waste time. But there's no need to hurry because whenever he does something, it's going to be at the perfect time. So to bring that all together, various flying apart, come bring it all back together, Yeshua is the cornerstone because he is perfect in faithfulness and dependability. That ties together both the image of the stone as a structure and the image of Yeshua's faithfulness being perfect. It all comes together in the idea of the cornerstone. No promise could ever be surer than Yeshua's promise. Why? Because nothing else making that promise is as perfect. Okay, now I'm getting some blank stares. Am I, am I confusing? Okay. You're just all, all, all resting sleepy face. I am the same way. That's why my wife always thinks I'm ignoring her. When in reality, I'm only occasionally ignoring her. To give an idea of how perfect Yeshua's faithfulness is, I want to bring up an illustration I read many years ago. Um, I'm going to compare faithfulness to smoothness. You all know what the word smooth means, right? Slick, no roughness to it. It's smooth. How many of you have ever held a one-inch ball bearing? 
Yeah, a good a good sized ball bearing. A couple of us, yeah. You've all seen. All of you have had smaller ball bearings before, yeah. Um, would you describe a ball bearing as smooth? Would you describe it as perfectly smooth? Well, it's pretty close, yeah. It's smooth, and if, if there were any roughness on it, it wouldn't work. So it, it's pretty dang smooth. Now I want you to think about the terrain between Death Valley and Mount Everest. All the land going up. Would you call that smooth? Oh, not at all. And yet, if you were to take the earth and compress it down to the size of that one-inch ball bearing, we have never made a ball bearing anywhere near as smooth as the earth is. Really, it's true. It's all a matter of scale. Yeshua is eternal. So he's huge. He's covers, he's omnipresent outside of his bodily form. And so he is everywhere. He's the size bigger than the universe. And yet his faithfulness compared to that smoothness is perfect. So when it's brought down to the size, you know, the ball bearing huge is rough and bring it down to small size. The earth's Bring it down so it's smooth. Yeshua, over the whole universe, is perfectly faithful, perfectly smooth. And if you bring it down to the size of just your faithfulness to you, or faithfulness to Norm, or faithfulness to Doris, how much more perfect would he seem at that point? Honestly, it couldn't be any more perfect because it's an infinite and you can't, you can't multiply or divide infinity. It's an old, what's infinity squared? Yes, I'm glad somebody got it. I was going to feel like a fool if nobody else knew that. It's, it's, I guess it's not basic math, but. All right. Um, so if Adonai's faithfulness is perfect, and we know it is, how has he demonstrated that to us? It's, it's, can anybody else, I, I can't comprehend how faithful and perfect God is. Anyone else here ever do that? No, it's, it's perf- completely beyond the human ability to comprehend. I don't care if you've got an IQ of, what's the highest, 200? So if you've got an IQ of 4,000, you probably still can't understand it. Your fastest supercomputers cannot calculate how perfect God is. Your most creative artists cannot see and picture how perfect God is. Certainly none of us mere mortals can. And so Adonai has demonstrated his faithfulness in ways that we can't understand. Obviously none of them are perfect demonstrations because we couldn't get it. But he simplifies it so we can understand it. One of the big ways he's demonstrated his faithfulness is through prophecy. That seems fairly obvious, doesn't it? If he says this is going to happen and then it happens... That shows that he's faithful, right? I'm going to go through several prophecies here. Um, for the sake of time, because there are little, because literally spend uh, a couple of semesters discussing all the demonstrations of God's faithfulness in prophecy that would take forever. So I'm going to limit to a, a few portions on this, on the subject of the, uh, of subject of Israel's continued existence. And some of us have to be somewhere this afternoon so we don't go into the whole subject. In Isaiah 11, verses 11 through 12, And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left, from Assyria, and from Egypt, and from Patros, and from Cush, from Elam, and from Shinar, and from Hamat, and from the islands of the sea, this is poetic language. It names a bunch of specific places. Then it leaves us with the islands of the sea. Some uh, theologians have said the islands of the sea refer specifically to the islands in the Mediterranean. But it doesn't specifically say that. It says land in the sea, which would be places like Japan, North America. All of these places. We're, every land, because the earth is 75% water, 
Every land is an island in the sea, right? Even Antarctica, even though you can't see it. Well, part of it you can, I guess. And from all those places all around the world, he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Has he demonstrated his faithfulness in that? Are there, are there Jews in Israel right now? Is there any country that doesn't have Jews in Israel right now? Again, maybe Antarctica. They don't have really any permanent people. But any country that actually has people has at least one or two Jewish people who have gone to Israel. God has recovered the remnant of his people from all these lands, from the islands of the sea, from the four corners of the earth. Which, frankly, up until the, up until the middle of the last century... Uh, most scholars thought was impossible. They'd point to the prophecies in Israel and say, well, too bad these aren't true, but we can trust the rest of the prophecies because there's no way Israel can ever be reconstituted and, re- re- and come, come into a, as a state again. And yet in 1948, look, there it is. Uh, Ezekiel 34:13. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land. Not to Eastern Africa, to their own land where they started. And feed them upon the mountains of Israel, by the rivers, and in all the inhabited places of the country. Mark Twain, when he visited Israel in, I think it was like 1850-something, is that about right? I may be off on that, I'm not sure exactly when he went there. Uh... But when, when he went there sometime in the 1800s, he said it is a land of miracles. All the goats and the sheep eat rocks. They must because there's nothing else there but rocks. There's nothing else for the goat and sheep to eat, so they must be eating rocks. And now, just like the prophecy says here, and feed them upon the mountains of Israel. Israel exports the largest exporter of citrus fruit to Europe is Israel. It's a tiny little country the size of New Jersey. And something like 80% of the citrus fruit in all of Europe comes from Israel. This is not a barren, desolate place. Flowers also, but you can't eat flowers. Well, I guess you can if you're a hippie. You make dandelion salad, I guess. That's not the flower, it's the leaf. Different subject. Getting off track. Again, apparently I'm still not focusing very well. <laughs> oh, I like rabbit. Try it's not kosher. It's very greasy, but it's tasty. Isaiah 49:22. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up mine hand to the Gentiles, or to the nations. I think nations is actually a better word to go there. And set up my standard to the people. And they shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. In the early days of, after, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, was there an El Al Airlines? No, they weren't founded, they were, I'm not sure when they were founded, but it wasn't in the first couple of years of Israel's existence. And yet, all these millions of Jews, came to Israel. How did they get there? Ships, planes, European ships and planes, American ships and planes, African ships and planes, Asian ships and planes. The other nations were literally carrying God's people back to their land. God has demonstrated his perfect faithfulness in doing these things when everybody on the planet thought it was impossible. In 1920, if you were to take a vote of the entire planet and get everyone to vote honestly, which would never happen, but if it did, I would guess you'd get a couple hundred people who would say, yeah, it's possible that Israel could be reestablished as a nation. And yet, here it is. 
the Encyclopedia Britannica uh, from 1930, I want to say 32, had an entry about Israel. And it talked about it as a historical nation where the Jews lived in biblical times. It talked about them, about the Roman diaspora, when in uh, 132 AD, all Jews were expelled from the area known as uh, uh, Palestina. It's something Palestina. I can't remember the, the full Roman name. I apologize for that. And from that time until the 1900s, actually there were some moving back in the 1800s, uh, there were functionally no Jews in Israel. You may find a few people here and there who, you know, their families snuck back in and after the Roman Empire fell, nobody really stopped them. But there wasn't a real Jewish presence in Israel. For very nearly 2,000 years, we're looking, see, 130 to, say, 1830, uh, 1,700 years. That's a long time. In history, how many nations have been kicked entirely out of their land and then at a later time, even as much as you know, 40 or 50 years later, how many of them have ever come back to the land they once had, still maintaining their national identity and still speaking the language that they spoke before? Any guesses? You want to guess? Hmm? Well, the Turks slaughtered most of them, and some, many of them left. They, they still had a presence, a cultural presence there. Um, it was it was small, but it was they were never completely eliminated. It, no matter how hard the Turks tried, the Armenians were never completely destroyed. Neither were the Jews completely destroyed. And again, with that, we're talking about a, a time of, what, 20, 30 years? I'm talking 1,700 plus years. It never... Anyone know any Hittites? Anyone ever met a Hittite? How about an Agagite? Canaanite of any sort? All the different brands of those? They're gone. Those cultures no longer exist because through the various conquests, they were assimilated into other, other, other cultures. When Babylon exiled, uh, the other Canaanite nations, they, they took them with, along with the Jews when they conquered Israel. What happened to the other people that were there? They became Persians. They became Babylonians and Persians. They no longer thought of themselves as the nations they were before, but the Jews did. This only happens because of God's faithfulness. I should point out, since I'm bringing this up, a lot of people object to using these prophecies this way. Uh, because clearly they're talking about the Babylonian exile, which lasted 70 years, then the people came back. They were fulfilled in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, so they, they apply to that exile, not the diaspora that is just now in the process of ending. I still apply them, and I'll give you two good reasons why I still apply them. First, Yeshua and his inspired apostles in their letters, they applied them in this way. I mean, some uh, 800 years after the return from Babylon, the apostles and Yeshua were both taking these prophecies and saying, this means that all God's people will be brought back again. You're not going to find a higher authority than Yeshua. I mean, he knows what he's talking about when he's talking about prophecies, since he's the one who inspired the prophets to say them. And the apostles clearly show, because they were not divine, but, you know, Paul especially was educated. The other ones were brought up in the culture of first century Israel. They heard these prophecies taught. And obviously they were taught in the culture of the time that they still applied even though they had been fulfilled before they apply again. The second reason I, I uh, still apply these prophecies 
Because as I've mentioned before, it's kind of a favorite topic of mine, cyclical history. You've heard me say that before. Adonai seems to compose history in a cyclical fashion, where things that happened before happen again. And sometimes again and again and again. Israel, standing in faith, falling away, becoming apostatized and then punished, and then coming back to faith, and then again and again and again. I've I've lost count of how many times that happened through the books of uh, Joshua, Judges, Chronicles, and Kings, and Samuel, First, Second Samuel. All of the historical books, it's just a constant over and over again. And you can see prophecies being fulfilled multiple times every time this happens. Now, admittedly, I'm, I'm giving all these prophecies from the Tanakh. I would love to give you some examples from the Brit Hadashah. That'd be great. I simply didn't find any direct ones relating to this topic, though, which actually is the reason why uh, replacement theology backs itself up with a lot of these scriptures. The same scriptures we use to support uh, Israel still having a place in the end times, they use to support the fact that it doesn't because they're saying those were already fulfilled and don't apply anymore. When Yeshua or the apostles brought the subject up, they simply quoted the prophets of the Tanakh. Um, now, although, although the, the difference is that some of the eschatological prophecies... Eschatology is the study of the end times, by the way, in case you, I'm sure most of you already knew that. But we all know there's, there's somebody out there who didn't remember that big long word. And I like using dollar words where a nickel one will work. Some of the, most of the eschatological prophecies, if I can even say the word, refer to events happening in the end times in a Jewish nation, in a Jewish temple. And so there's sort of an indirect prophecy that Israel will return and have a place. But there's no direct prophecy in the New Testament that says, I will bring my people back, or God will bring his people back. That doesn't happen. Doesn't mean it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't mean it doesn't, wasn't taught. It just means it was taken as such a matter of course that it wasn't written down in any of the letters that he, that were saved in what we call the New Testament. Um, history over and over again has taken the continued existence of Israel, even in exile, as evidence of God's faithfulness. Over 300 years ago, and I don't know the exact year, but uh, we're talking about King Louis XIV, Louis XIV of France. Um, he died in 1715, so it was before that, obviously. He was talking with Blaise Pascal, I'm sure Aaron knows who he is. No? Famous philosopher and mathematician. The computer language is named after him. Blaise Pascal. Okay. Um, the great French philosopher. King Louis asked Blaise Pascal to give him proof of God's existence. And he seemed kind of surprised. He answered, why the Jews, your majesty, the Jews. A little later, uh, Frederick the Great, uh, Tsar of Russia, in 1779, this is better recorded, asked, this, the, asked the same question of the Marquis d'Argen, uh, a French ambassador. Can you give me one single irrefutable proof of God? And his answer was, yes, Your Majesty, the Jews. Some of these stories, there, there are five or six stories like this. Some of them may be apocryphal. I can't be for certain because I wasn't in these courts at that time. But at least these two have been handed down separately, even though they're so similar. David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of the state of Israel, to bring it up to modern times, well, modern-ish times. Some of us were alive then. The mail is coming. A Jew who does not believe in miracles, and obviously one of the miracles is the reestablishment of Israel, 
is not a realist. Basically saying that God's faithfulness, without God's faithfulness, you can't have anything real. Reality depends upon God's faithfulness. For us, these are interesting historical anecdotes. For some of us who are more scholarly, we can take the uh, documentarian evidence and take it to heart and be convinced by that. Many of us don't trust things written on paper because we don't know who wrote them. We don't know what was the reason they wrote them. We don't trust those people. Um, Anybody trust themselves more than you trust other people? Yeah. I hope you, you trust yourself more than you trust me, I hope. I can't speak for all of you, and you can't speak for me, and none of us can speak for anybody else. But your own experience is a proof that nobody can take away from you. You experience that. You know it. Yeshua is the cornerstone, but your own experience of him is the structure that is built upon that firm foundation. Now, for myself, I know who I was before I submitted to Mashiach. I was a wholly different person than I am now. I was not a great person before that, by any standard. Anyone else have that experience? Before you met Yeshua, you were a different person? Yeah. Now, for some people, the salvation experience is a sudden and dramatic and permanent shift in their entire personality and persona. Some of you, that may be the case. You may have come to faith and suddenly you're a completely different person. Or that may happen to somebody who needs encouragement from you and you're speaking. For me, it was more like, actually, like plucking a string on a guitar or plucking a, a cello string. There's the sudden jolt. You, see, you hear it? You, there's a sudden, sudden sound. It's louder, and then the rest kind of, kind of fades out after a time. In sound terms, that's called a short attack and a long release, which you don't need to know. Just, just in case you're ever learning what to call that, that's what it's called. And to be honest, when I first came to faith, the note didn't stay that loud for that long. This guitar held that note for, what would you say, about six, seven seconds maybe? Uh, that would be about how long it lasted for me when I my first couple of years of faith. I was constantly needing to pluck that string again to remind myself of this gift that is at one time so incredible as to be unforgettable. And yet it's also so comfortable that it's easy to think of it as as commonplace and forget about it. Anyone else share that experience? You don't need to raise your hands. No matter how you are personally affected, how you came to be aware of his presence, it's proof enough for you, right? And it may encourage somebody else. But only their own experience of Adonai will carry the same weight for them. You can share, I, I encourage you to share your experience. Your testimony is one of the most profound things you can share with someone who's searching. But your testimony can't replace their testimony. God demonstrates his faithfulness through promises kept. Now we get to most of our haftarah. And uh, most of chapter 26 of our Torah reading. Hashem proves himself the foundational cornerstone by faithful, faithfully keeping his own promises. Let's start with the blessings, because those are much more pleasant to deal with. He promises blessings to those who follow his ways. Like the song said this morning, Steve was talking. He gave us people the chance to choose obedience over disobedience, right over wrong, gerizim over ebal. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, 
And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. We saw this very clearly fulfilled in the Davidic kingdom. And we also find it fulfilled in the joy of, in the, of the hearts of God's people, even when we're suffering hardship. That encouragement, you find that God has this under control and will make it, everything will come out in the end. That's God lifting you up and setting you on high. In Luke eleven twenty eight, I finally got something from the New Testament. But he said, Yea, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. That's a little out of, out of context, but it, it does indirectly relate exactly to what I was saying. He was, he was speaking to the, the woman who said, you know, blessed is uh, the woman who gave birth to you and who, at whose breast you suckled. And he said, no, this is much better. Much better than that. Much better than her blessing is the blessing of everybody who hear the word of God and keep it. And again, that is a promise that is fulfilled both corporately among a nation or among a synagogue or a church or individually among each person. And now to the other side of the coin. Curses and punishments. There are more of these. I'm only going to pull out three. Deuteronomy 11, 16 to 17. Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then Adonai's wrath be kindled against you and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain and that the land yield not her fruit lest ye perish quickly from the good land which the Lord giveth you. What he's saying is if you're disobedient, you won't even get the mercy of a quick death. You're going to suffer through hunger and hardship and Essential, long, drawn-out pain. Second Kings, uh, verse, uh, chapter 17, verse, meaning verse 19. Also, Judah kept not the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. And the Lord rejected all the seed of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them into the hands of spoilers until he had cast them out of his sight. First Corinthians, chapter 11, beginning in verse 28. Also, Judah kept not the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. And the Lord rejected the seed of Israel and afflicted them and delivered them behind us. He's quoting the same thing again. See, I was so unfocused, I didn't realize that that was the same verse being quoted. So anytime you think I might be clever, that's evidence that I'm not. Anyway, over and over again, Scripture makes it clear that whom God judges obedient to his commandments, he blesses. And whom he judges disobedient, he curses. I don't know exactly what criterion he uses beyond the face value of if it says it's a sin, it is. How much he weighs intent and understanding into that, that that's God's choice to make, not mine. Um, but bringing that up, who is this God guy? Who, who is out of line to judge without due process? Don't we have the right to argue our own case? Well, no. <laughs> Couple reasons. A, he is the creator. I think all you know, I think of myself as a songwriter, yes? In fact, I just found out I'm getting $8.36 from CCLI for a song that I wrote. I'm happy about that. It's not a lot of money, but it means I'm a songwriter. Um, and speaking of that, it means I have an interest in the idea of intellectual property. Does anyone, everyone know what intellectual property is? It means if you write a song, or if my wife crochets a, an original shawl, or if Aaron writes a book, or if John writes a sermon, he has the right to decide what is done with that, and who can use it. 
That's what intellectual property is. That's what copyright laws are all about. Um, Do anyone disagree with that? Does that seem like a wrong idea to anyone? Okay. Well, then I refer you to Genesis 1.1. Brashit Elohim et bet In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. He made it and everything in it. So he can do whatever he wants with it. I bring you up Noah as a point of that. Uh, some say that between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, God created the universe and then let it go through its cycle and decided it was awful, so he destroyed it and started over again. Because it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2 says, and the earth was formless and void. If he had just created it and then it was formless and void, I think they're taking that a little too literally because, again, Genesis is not meant to be a science text. Uh, but there is that theory out there. And if God chose to destroy the universe and start over again, would it be his right to do so? Absolutely. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. And this time I'm going to the uh, Tree of Life version uh, just because I, I think it has a better translation than the King James. The heart is deceitful above all things and incurable. Who can know it? I, Adonai, search the heart. I try the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. It's his, it's his to do, so he does it. He is not only the ultimate judge, he is the standard of righteousness, the standard of sin and not sin. He is the definition uh, this shows up in some of the very next verses from our Haftarah. We only skip a couple. Uh, Jeremiah 17, beginning in verse 12. Throne of glory on high from the beginning, place of our sanctuary. Adonai, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be ashamed. Those who depart from you will be written in the dirt. For they have forsaken Adonai, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, Adonai, and I will be healed. By the way, one of the few quotes that Tevye got right from the Bible. Save me, and I will be saved, for you are my praise. Adonai is the definition of justice because he is righteous enough to be justice. In our country, we have a fairly decent, you know, we have a lot of problems with our legal system, I know. Our legal system is the worst, worst legal system on the planet, except for every other one. And our legal system is, is actually fairly good compared to most of the world. Um, but it's complex. It, it's hard to understand how our legal system works a lot of times. Which is why we have lawyers whose job is to understand it and do it represent you in court because most of the time you know, the old axiom of a man who represents himself has a fool for a client. Um, why is our legal system so complex? Because we are people. We are imperfect. We can't accurately judge right and wrong because we have our own biases. We have our own experiences that confuse the issue. Adonai is perfect. He has no need of a jury. He doesn't need a consensus because he himself is the actual definition of, of righteousness. So we have a lot of questions here that you may be asked someday. Um, how do I know that God is faithful? How do I know that God keeps his promises? Why should I believe what the Bible says? When you ask these questions, it can often get us into trouble because we tend to answer from our own feelings, our own point of view. What we need to remember when we're responding to this, and this is the take-home for today, for the, the how do I apply this to my life part, it's really short. When you're dealing with situations like that, remember, 
Adonai is the judge. You are not the judge. I am not the judge. Your church, your synagogue is not the judge. The church and its interpretations of historically are not the judge. Scripture, believe it or not, is not the ultimate judge of righteousness because it is interpreted by people. Adonai is the judge of what's right and wrong. Um, how many of you remember the story of Galileo? Yeah, Galileo, he was an astronomer in, uh, I'm going to not even try to guess the year. I know it was sometime in the Renaissance period. And he looked at the universe and looked through his telescopes and thought, oh, well, you know, the, uh, I'm pretty sure the earth goes around the sun, not the sun going around the earth. It's called the heliocentric model of the universe as opposed to the terracentric model of the universe, which is also, that's wrong in a lot of points. Um, and he, he published his paper to this effect, and the church came up to him and said, that's not what the Bible says. You can't say that because it contradicts Scripture. It doesn't actually contradict Scripture. It contradicts what the church interpreted Scripture say. But if you go down to the base words of what Scripture says, it doesn't even address that issue. So be very careful that you let Adonai judge these things. That you don't put your, when someone asks you, is this a sin or not? You can tell them, from my point of view, I think it is. Or from my point of view, I think it isn't. But really, it's up to the Lord to judge that. And it's up to your relationship with the Lord to tell you what's right and wrong. And make sure that you're listening to God, not yourself, because I don't, I'm, I'm not the only one who talks to myself a lot, am I? You don't have to admit it if you don't want to, but we all do. Oh, blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you today, to lift you up, to gain a little insight into how you relate to your people. Lord, I just ask that as we leave this place today to go to the various places that we, you would have us go, that you'd remind us to carry you with us always, to trust in you, and not only to trust in you, but to trust in nothing besides you. Lord, the, may you grant us the insight to correctly interpret your word. And Lord, may you grant us the humility to recognize that we may not always correctly interpret it. May all these people here today go out. May they be protected from the enemy. And may they be the reflections of your light to the entire world, everyone they meet. In the name of Messiah, we pray all these things. Amen.